You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's John Spirisavet and Rebecca Rosenthal. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, John. Nice to be here. Are you wearing your 25th episode of Tov sash? <laughs> yes, I am. In fact, I am wearing a diagonal word belt. Yes, uh, very good. <laughs> it's great that a show like has enough going on that it can reference itself. You know. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is so we. I would say nearly halfway through the the lifetime of this podcast, and and you need a title too. That's sort of more than co-host. You need like super co-host or something like that. You know. Hey, I get to do the season finale, and I feel like that's like special, special season finale cred here. It is very special, and uh, just like on Saturday Night Live, obviously, whoever does the the finale, and as a New Yorker, and I'm sure you'd appreciate that. <laughs> so, so the season finale is uh, chapter 26, somewhere else. The ones that you pick, as we said, your last episode, the wand picks the wizard, that the first of your episodes of this podcast, you were talking about, oh, I'm not a moral philosophy person. And yet you unwaveringly pick the episodes that have like the most meaty moral philosophy and moral, certainly moral psychology. In them, so. I don't know if that's an accident or not, but, you know, fate, I guess. Maybe, maybe. One of the things I love about this episode is I think Chidi really claims his ground, you know, really forcefully. And a couple, it's only a couple moments, but they're, they're awesome. This makes me feel good. I really felt for Eleanor in the moment where she looks at the YouTube video and realizes it's three hours long. And she's like, I'm not going to watch it. And then she gets completely sucked in. And I feel like that's exactly how we are not even with moral philosophy lectures, but with Netflix binges or things you see on YouTube, you're like, I'm only going to watch this for five minutes. And then, you know, six hours later, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I've just watched three hour more philosophy lecture. <laughs> and at the same time, this episode, I, I had to go back and see whether it was just a regular length episode. It was your regular 22 and a half minute episode. And I could not believe how like perfectly constructed it was and how much they got in there of ideas and character and and laughs. I mean, this has got to be one of the most brilliantly written episodes of television I think I've ever seen. Plus, do, I don't know if I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole in Google, and this episode actually spawned a tremendous amount of internet discussion afterwards about whether they are in a simulation or whether they've sort of been reincarnated and are back, are back to life. And I think there was a very long gap, if I'm remembering correctly, between the end of season two and the beginning of season three. And it just led to people speculating wildly about all the different scenarios about like what actually happened in this episode. And of course, we we know and we have, you know, we have the benefit of having watched the rest of the show. But it was a super interesting rabbit hole to see what people were imagining was actually going on here. Wow. So so chapter 26, Somewhere Else, season two finale. Tell us what happened, Rebecca. Sure. So Michael argues to the judge that the whole system of judging humans is flawed. The unintended outcome of his experiment was that the bad humans became better. But the judge argues that the only reason they did improve was to get to the good place. Tahani says the reason she improved was because she and Eleanor became mates, which is British for friends. <laughs> ja Janet confesses her love to Jason and Chidi kisses Eleanor. And she says, hot diggity dog. <laughs> Michael suggests a way to test his theory. And with a snap of his fingers, the judge sends Eleanor back to the moment just before she died. Someone pushes Eleanor out of the way of the grocery carts and saves her life. 
Eleanor begins to change. She quits her job, apologizes to the environmental guy, joins the organization and feels satisfaction in her work. Michael and Janet monitor her progress in a room with ticker tapes of all the humans. But after Eleanor confesses about the dress bitch incident, things begin to go downhill again and she abandons her path. On her next birthday, a year after dying, Eleanor ends up in a bar where Michael has slipped out to meet her. His final words cause Eleanor to Google what we owe each other. She finds a lecture by Chidi and gets on a plane to Australia to find him and talk. And of course, that whole Michael scene being a callback to Cheers is just like uh, such a great synergy of brilliance here. And, and once again, have to recommend the Official Good Place podcast with I with Ted Danson talking about this episode where they where they talked to him about what it was like to to go back and stand behind that bar, which I think he said he had not acted a scene as a bartender since the end of Cheers. Wow, amazing. I, I did listen to that podcast, but I'll have to go back and, and listen again. This this episode just had so much depth in it. You know, it was still funny and it was still interesting. And unlike most of my episodes on the podcast, it actually advances the plot somewhat. But there was just like, there were just so many beautiful things and and just being left with the question of, you know, does your does your beginning determine your end? What does it mean that we live in a flawed system? What do we owe each other? These kind of huge questions that permeate our everyday life. Think about all of the conversations that we have now about criminal justice reform and racism in this country. The system is flawed. Even as you and I were speaking before, this is less than a week after the shooting in Uvalde and about two weeks after the shooting in Buffalo. And the idea that we can't get any gun control reform because the system is flawed because of the way our system is constructed, that even though it is very popularly supported, we can't get our lawmakers to actually do anything, right? This idea that in general, the way we judge, the way we judge people, the way we act as people, the way we make any change is fundamentally flawed, right? The good place is really reflecting our society back for, to us, but doing it in such a funny and poignant and interesting. And just, you know, since you you went down that uh, direction for the the things of the moment when we're recording, it's, it is also interesting that in the episode when Eleanor objects to the idea that they'll all be sent to their own individualized medium place while, while things get worked out, and, uh, you know, she rejects that they have to be together. Here we know, spoilers, that they are going to find each other again in this next iteration, but it actually does have to start with a focus on one of them at a time. If Eleanor can't figure out how to sort of turn herself, then then there's really no point, apparently, for them all trying to do it. And I guess that's a lesson for us uh, immediately in the moment, too, that as much as we want to point our fingers out at who else has got to has gotta fix this. I mean, yeah, there's Michael who says, no, the system, we got to redesign the system. But while he's up there figuring it out and says he needs a million, somewhere between a month and a million years. Hopefully it's not going to take us a million years, but... Yeah. You know, and also it's an interesting, this episode is such an interesting question about should you burn down the whole system or is incremental change the way to go? Mm. Eleanor really tries to burn down the whole system and become good Eleanor as opposed to, you know, bad Eleanor or whatever she was b- before this. And she can't sustain it for various reasons. It's very hard to change that way, to wake up one morning and say... I'm going to be completely different. And so she does it, but she kind of burns out after after six months when things get really difficult for her. And I think one of the things about The Good Place is sort of this argument that our change is slow. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We, we, change, we change slowly, but that doesn't mean 
we shouldn't change. Yeah, it's amazing how they tell the story of Eleanor's evolution. The first time I watched this episode, I was so uh, taken with how they sold Eleanor as someone who had really made this decision. And, and we talk about Teshuva as in the in the Maimonides classical text as making a decision because of Teshuva out of pure will. And she, you know, not only acts differently, but she, she smiles differently, she carries herself differently. And that goes for what's probably only about five minutes of television before it starts to unwind. And it was so, I felt like they had so won the right to show us this other Eleanor and then to give us this other version where she tries to say like, why am I not feeling better is, is it was really brilliant how they pulled off that issue, I think, of pacing that you're talking about. And I think also one of the poignant moments for me is when she's in her house and the environmental guy comes and he's like, Eleanor, this is your job. You have to show up. And then her friend shows up with the concert tickets to the T- Taylor Swift cover band. And, and I think, was it a reggae cover? I can't remember. Yes, what reggae, reggae, reggae cover band. And <laughs> Taylor Swift. And she says like, oh, that looks like more fun. I'm going to do that. And this idea that we need some balance in our lives between being, you know, not that it's not virtuous to go to a Taylor Swift concert. And I think very virtuous, very virtuous to go to a Taylor Swift concert. But I think, you know, we can't spend our whole lives in this like, how am I going to be good? How am I going to be better? How am I going to be better? How am I going to be better? Because we're going to burn out. We have to find a way to have some balance so that we can get better so that we can do things that, you know, are both challenging and bring us joy, right? It's the idea of Shabbat, that we work for six days and on the seventh day we rest and we cease our creative efforts and we don't try to keep going because otherwise we won't be able to function. Mm. And I think that's that's the lesson of this of this Eleanor right now, which is she we can't function if we're if we're acting that way all the time, mm. um, especially if it's such a major change from who we were before. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think you know I've said this to you here before that that's my issue of trying to figure out also how not to instrumentalize my downtime or my joyful time as a nutrient pill or something that I take for the sake of that that other time and or how to make it both, I guess, because maybe for me it has to be both. I, I wanted to say that the notion of teshuva, you've, people have heard us say it uh, slow, teshuva, or fast, tshuva, uh, which means going back. That's the Jewish conceptualization of what Eleanor calls her self-improvement project. It, it literally involves going back. And so in this episode, we have, in a way, these two ideas of, of physically where where Eleanor should go. Like it's literally back to the place she was when she had a fork in, in the road. And and it's it's it was a margarita mix. It, it was no well, or it, it was a margarita, and it was a fork in a garbage disposal. Yes. <laughs> but then this episode is somewhere else, and it's almost like what you were saying before about do we have to burn the place down, or what can we make out of the place we are? And so she actually does leave where she is to go all the way to Australia. That was that was brilliant. And I think there was something in the bar scene, I noticed that, where she was trying to describe the, the plot of Kangaroo Jack. I wonder if that's has anything to do with why Chidi is teaching in Australia and not Africa. Well, then you get, you know, you, you get that the Jewish text of Shinuimakom, Shinuimazal, change your place, change your luck. And I don't think Eleanor's spending a lot of time studying the Talmud, I got to say. But <laughs> it's, it's as when she goes to be Chidi, as it's, it's as though she instinctively knows in some way that that's going to help her change her luck, it's going to help her change her situation. And she has to, she can't just write Chidi an email or Zoom him. She has to actually go to Australia and and speak to him 
face to face and try to learn from him face to face. And that that is actually going to be the thing that helps her sustain her change rather than just like waking up. I, I actually thought the the way the I guess it's cinematography. I lived in LA for five years and I still don't really have to, <laughs> but I think, you know, the way every morning she wakes up and opens her eyes and you sort of see her progressing, her hair is getting a little more messed up. It's getting a little harder for her to open her eyes. And the thing that's going to help her sustain her change is not just like dramatically giving up everything in her life, but actually doing some small steps, not that going to Australia is a small step, but really learning over time and sustain, trying to sustain it over time. Yeah. And that, that pattern of uh, what in Judaism is called exile and return is is really stamped in this notion of teshuva. In the Torah, you actually have to be expelled from your land, and then you come back. It's the same place, but you have to be different. Even your whole society has to be different to what we were talking about before. And I think one of Maimonides' recommendations thing you do is to take yourself away, exile yourself, and then come back. And and we'll see in the rest of the show that they'll go lots of places, but there there's a time when Eleanor will come back to Arizona to see her mother, and and then, of course, they'll get back to the neighborhood. So it's, I think, really interesting the, the way place is both a, a real thing and a metaphor. And and as you were saying at the start, like we're like our job at the moment that we're focused on is how to change this place where we live. And we're not going to do it by all going to Australia, probably, although it sounds like a cool place to go. Yeah, I'd love to go to Australia. Just, you know, and if Chidi's there, all the better. <laughs> as Eleanor calls him, Chidi Anna Kendrick. Yes, which is <laughs> another uh, callback, I think, to what she called him early somewhere in season in season one. <laughs> it was also great. I love that this episode, they, it, it's so different from the end of season one. And yet, in a way, it's not. You know, this the same kind of uh, sudden in the middle of reasoning it out, there's that kind of snap. And then a new thing happens and the memories are sort of washed away. It was just such a great a great way. And the first time this week that I watched it, I watched it two times again. I had I could not stop myself. I had to go watch the the next episode. It was, yeah. That's what happens when you watch three hour moral philosophy lectures. You just gotta keep going. That's right. And I did not watch this originally when it happened. So I had no wait time that I had to respect when I when this you were talking about the gap between when season to, uh, was was put out the first time. Yeah. yeah, somehow the way this got aired live, there were many months in between seasons, like it was like a mid-season replacement or something. And so it took took a long time to get to the next season. I think with each season, it was, it was a challenge for those of us who were watching TV live. So you brought us something which is a cool riff on and sort of ties the first part of the episode with the judge into to the rest of it. Yeah. So, you know, when when the judge, the brilliant and incredible Maya Rudolph is talking to them and they say, well, we've gotten better, we've gotten better. And Michael's arguing that they've gotten better. And, you know, just this like really, really st stuck with me, this idea of does your beginning determine your end? And they're talking about after death, but I think it applies in life too, right? If you are one way as a teenager and or as a young adult, does that automatically determine your path as an adult? And or and I think especially when you start to read some of the research about race and class, like sometimes the answer is yes. You know, it's hard for people to break out of to break out of a cycle. And and so the judge is saying the only reason you got better is because you thought there was some kind of ultimate good place related reward to be had as as she calls it your moral dessert and she says you should do good because you're good not because you are expecting something and and the thing that popped out to me is something that actually has made its way 
into the Sidur, but starts out um, in the Mishnah, where the rabbis say, These are the things that you can do without measure. You can do as much as you want. And the things that they talk about are leaving the corners of your field to give to the poor. So you can kind of extrapolate that to me to think about just you can feed people who are hungry as much as you want. There's no limit to to helping people. The Bikurim, the first fruits that you give to the Kohen in the temple, that you give to the high priest in the temple and various other kind of sacrificial pieces, this idea that somehow connecting to your Jewish community and and bringing yourself to your Jewish community is um, another thing you can do without measure. They talk about Talmud Torah, the study of Torah, and also Gimilud Chazadim, which we translate as acts of loving kindness. This idea that we can be good to each other. We can do things that are good. We can help each other. And there is no limit to how much we can do. And there's maybe no reward. But then there's a contradict. Well, it's not a contradict, maybe a complimentary text that says you're not going to get rewarded for these things in this world, but you may get rewarded for them in the world to come if you really do this. And, you know, maybe the good place is, is the world to come. That's what you get. But I think if I just sit with the original Mishnah, this idea that it is is kind of what Maya Rudolph is talking about, which is we do good because we're good people. You do good because you are good or because you want to be good. And this is how you are good and you don't worry so much about the reward. And it's a contradiction to what the good place is talking about, which is that maybe there really is no tally for good things. You can just keep doing good things and good things and good things. And even if you're so good that your scale is like all the way tipped to good, you should still keep doing good things because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And it's interesting that they pick a couple different types of example, one that you would think would have a kind of measurement to them and things that you wouldn't. So you mentioned the corners of the the field, at some point, you have to decide how much of your field is the corner. (laughs) Otherwise, it's not, you know, it's not the corner anymore. And kindness to others and studying Torah aren't things that you would inherently measure. Although, I don't know, you're being an an educator, maybe we do break these things down into lessons, but not really. We certainly say that the more you do that, the better. Well, I mean, you you could think about sort of the way we've approached bar and bat mitzvah in the modern era in America. You have to learn this very specific piece of Torah for this very specific event for which you will get your reward, which is your party. And that seems to be in direct contradiction to the Mishnah, which is, you know, Torah for its own sake. And obviously, the rabbis have many moments where they're not only studying Torah for its own sake, but in order to get at an answer or to learn something. But they also have this concept of Torah lishma, Torah you just study because study is great. Um, and because Torah is great and Talmud is great and all of that is is great. And we just we just do it as opposed to trying to think about like, if I study this much Torah, I will get this much stuff or this much reward or this good thing will happen to me. You know, Eleanor is problem that she articulates eventually in the bar is she doesn't put it in like, this isn't helping me get into the good place, which she probably doesn't know about, I guess, in this iteration of her. But she talks about the the diagonal, the word belt, that she says the problem with do-gooders or with doing good is that no one cares. And nobody's patting her on the back about it, which I guess is a way of getting points sort of like intermediate in the way. But Michael comes back to her with this little voice in the head thing. It's like, I don't know if the environmental guy has a name, hot, Victorian, skinny, and boy. (laughs) I wonder if when she says nobody cares, if what she really means is nothing changes. And I think people who spend a lot of time doing advocacy work or any kind of long-term work that feels like a slog, it can feel like nothing changed when, you know, each, each little thing doesn't 
you don't see the big picture. You don't see your reward. I mean, teaching is sometimes like that. Sometimes you see the change instantly. And sometimes you don't see it for a long time. And you're like, Oh God, am I doing anything? Am I making any difference? Does anyone care what I'm doing? And like, you know, teachers are amazing wizards and they do amazing things. And I think for many teachers, it's hard sometimes for them to see, uh, yes, like this is the difference that I have made. I think that's, that's a little bit what Eleanor is saying. It's hard to go through the world in your professional life or in your personal life and feel like you're just working and working and working and never seeing a reward. But I think what, what Judge Maya Rudolph is saying is a little bit unrealistic, which is you have to have something to keep you going, even if it's not like an official reward, whatever that means. But you have to, in some way, see that what you're doing is making some kind of impact on someone somewhere in the world. Or, you know, it's the thing about newborn babies and how they always figure out how to smile, like exactly when <laughs> you're when you're just at your total wits end with them. And, and, you know, that's your reward for parenting them and keeping them alive to that moment. You're like, oh, a smile. I can survive another, you know, six months without sleeping. And I think to say the only way we can function is to be completely altruistic. That's the only way you get to the good place. Like nobody functions that way. That's why that moment when in when the environmental guy bursts into her apartment to say, where are you? Why didn't you show up? And she asks kind of what's the point of all this? And he says, a feeling of fulfillment in your soul, which isn't like, oh, we have like, the earth is going to burn up if we don't continue doing this. He, he really locates it there in fulfillment. And there's this nice pause there. And then she says, gross, that is the grossest sentence I've ever heard. But it also what you're saying makes me think that you can't have a feeling of fulfillment in your soul kind of by yourself without seeing it, that, that this is a false dichotomy between the inside and the outside. And and I'm now reading this Mishnah that you're bringing in, the, the part where we do get some fruits in the, the world to come. I think that the way it's trying to say it is that you do these kinds of deeds and you get, I think it's the Talmudic language for like, you get the the interest or the earnings of them in this world, but the principle of them stays with you in the world to come. So if you put your whole thing on what's the the good feeling or the the sense of reward, even in a, in a deep sense that you get in this world, you're going to kind of use that up. But if you can just feed just enough off it in this world to keep you going and doing it, then it's going to be there forever for you as your good place, I don't know, credential. And, you know, not to be too spoiler alerty about it, one of the things we learn later on in the series is that because everything has at least a twinge of a selfish motivation, no one can ever really get into the good place under the current system, right? The system is rigged, as they say. I don't know, am I allowed to spoiler alert on this? Absolutely, we're totally (laughs) spoiler alerting. Yeah, and I I think maybe this is why the the big kiss from Chidi to Eleanor is there, because that part of that whole love story gets developed a bit over these last few episodes, but it's not really gonna intensely pick up into the next season. So I think it maybe is reminding us that, that Eleanor like she does check back in to kind of reflecting on her motivations, but there does have to be some some yayas in it for her. We don't we don't just go based purely on doing the good for what's good. I'm trying to think about, you know, like Maya Rudolph as the judge because she's so into her, you know, guac and I know. I well, you know, as you know, some of your previous co hosts and I have like a particular love of guac and tips. So yeah. uh, this, is a, this is a shout out to previous co hosts, Sari and Audrey. <laughs> 
with the guac and the chips that she's going to put out. That's one of the things I just love about this show is that they just, you know, they're talking about the fate of these humans and what's going to happen to them. And she's like, anyone want some guac? Which is also in some ways a callback to the moment where, or I guess a call forward to the moment where Eleanor in a Mexican restaurant decides I'm giving up and I'm going to go back to being my, oh, my terrible yeah. self. And she goes to work for a Ponzi scheme within a Ponzi scheme. Is there guac like on the table while they're having that conversation? I, I can't remember. <gasps> oh, because that but, would be too cool. You know, as she says, like, you know, throw these plants in the trash. She's done being a vegetarian. <laughs> she's done being a good person. She's going to work for a Ponzi scheme. And that's it. Well, a, a Ponzi scheme within a Ponzi scheme. And she's all set. Well, that actually now now takes me back to where you started with things that don't need measuring or that don't have a limit on them. Because for me, I kind of rely a little bit on some quantification to help me know that I'm getting anywhere or that I'm doing at least sort of a minimum of something. I, I wrote in my application essay to rabbinical school, to the Jewish Theological Seminary, that this was really my own theory of ritual and prayer, that I just, I can't come up with this stuff on my own and I need a regular diet of actions or in the case of rituals or prayers, you know, things that tell me values that, that I just check in on each day. Because if I go too far out them, then I, I don't know. And and on, on the days I think I'm most balanced when I get to the prayer called modim, which is, you know, thankfulness, I stop and I make myself just be thankful for one thing since 24 hours ago. And I think when I don't do that, that I get out of whack. And that's where I think that the, the kind of, if not that sort of a cosmic point system, but just sort of a, a casual as you go point system helps me. Well, I I know this episode is going to come out after we're done counting the Omer, which are the days between Passover and Shavuot. But I just, I really love the practice of counting the Omer. Every day you count a different day. And I I love that practice because it forces you to stop and be like, today is X number of days of the Omer. And you're like, oh, yesterday was this number and tomorrow will be that number. And the, the head of school where my children are in school, Ariella Dubler wrote this beautiful message during the very beginning of the pandemic, first first pandemic Omer 2020. Wow. And, you know, she said the, that she feels like the beauty of the Omer and the blessing is that you're blessing the moment. You're not blessing something that's to come and you're not blessing something that already happened, as we so often do in Judaism. We, we're like going to do the mozi and then we're going to eat the bread or whatever it is. But all you're doing is like blessing the acknowledgement of of this moment that that you're in. And I think really finding a way to be present and mindful in that is very, very hard work, but it also potentially can bring up like, oh, I'm making incremental change. Time is time is moving forward. And look, I think my political persuasion often runs towards the like, burn everything down. Everything is terrible. We need a whole new system. But I also live in reality where that's not always an option. And I don't want people to give up because the only change we can make right now might be incremental. I don't want people to give up on trying to make change just because we can't burn it down, even if that would be my general preference. Not the earth. The earth, we should not burn. (laughs) It's already doing that for us, and it's all good. Eleanor says that she was being good for six months, which is like five years. So she has this problem of trying to gauge. And what we see her doing mostly is handing out leaflets, and she's really happy initially when people take them. And we don't we don't even know what the leaflets are about. We don't know if they're a call to action, and and it's one of the few times I think in the show that the 
Good Place actually does deal with a big concern, a wider concern beyond just sort of ethical interpersonal behavior. But there's no celebration like they caused a major environmental waste dump in Arizona to be cleaned up or anything like that. They're just sort of celebrating their outreach. And I guess the only other environmental thing we have is is Chidi's uh, almond milk issues. Look, I was amazed by how many people took Eleanor's leaflets in the beginning. I was thinking, I walk past those people on the street all the time and I never take their stuff. Original Eleanor. I do not yell at them, but I don't take their stuff. <laughs> well, probably, as, as you're saying that, the, maybe it was just that she noticed and was sort of excited about the people who took it Maybe it was the exact same number of people, but, you know, so that's why, again, my arguing for kind of some, maybe not scales of measuring our virtue, but of calibration of something just to kind of make make note of, because I mean, otherwise, you know, why is she doing environmental stuff other than, you know, and it's interesting, her friends, I love her, wait, I know there's Val and what's the other the other person's name <laughs> when they're sitting at the bar and uh, and when she's explaining why she's a vegetarian and the other woman says... Is it because they put all the animals in cages and force them to fatten up so that we can kill them and eat them? Something to that effect. And she's like, yeah, that's exactly why. Yeah. And I and actually, that's that's one of the things I really loved about the episode is that the friends, they, they do in some universe, like, get it. Like, they are totally aware of the fact that this treatment of animals, like, it's not that they've never heard about it and never not thought about it. They know about it and they don't care. And even this thing about the their near-death experience that, you know, she says, I almost died. And the two friends, you know, one talks about the warehouse <laughs> where her dentist. If I had gone to that dentist and I had been, I had an appointment that day, I would have been right in that area, right? And <laughs> being in Syracuse two weeks before 9-11. Um, and, and I actually think that that's not bad. In fact, your former colleague, Rabbi Sharon Browse, gave a, a holiday sermon once about Yom Kippur is, I think, trying to envision ourselves as going through a near-death experience and not actually having to have the near-death experience, but just to put ourselves in that position to motivate us. And you almost wonder if there's a version of the Friends where they could have the same awakening that, that she does. We haven't really reached the end of the episode, this question of what do we owe to each other and, and why be good? And this idea that we're not in this alone, that, that our desire to be good comes from our desire to be there for other people, which I think is like an extremely Jewish idea, this idea that we do not separate yourself from the community as it teaches in the Mishnah, but also this idea that, you know, it's not good for people to be alone, as God says, when God creates the first humans, that we are not designed to to be alone, we are designed to operate in community. And I think one of the things for me, at least, that was so hard about the pandemic is just how much loneliness there was and how alone people felt. And, and I think even if, you know, you were with your immediate family, people starkly felt this idea that, you know, we were not meant to be alone. We were meant to live in in real three-dimensional community, not virtual community, and not, not alone. And that that desire to be part of a community is part of what motivates us to, to, to be good and, and to be there for other people and, and to believe that we do owe, owe things to other people. Michael starts with the question, what do we owe each other? But that actually makes an assumption that we do owe each other something. And I think Eleanor, through her relationship with Chidi, starts to really believe that, that we do owe each other something. So maybe you can answer this, because I when Michael said that, I wondered why that spoke to her. You know, I... I as we've been doing this whole podcast, I've been thinking about what kind of residual memories remain with Eleanor of her previous experiences. Even if her memory has been erased, is there some part of her that 
remembers that she had these relationships and how much they meant to her and that her relationship with Tahani was transformative for Tahani and that her relationship with Shidi was transformative for her, right? It's a little bit like the, the idea in, in Jewish thought that when you are in the womb, you learn all of Torah. And then when you come out, an angel touches your lip and you forget everything and you have to spend your life learning it back. But it's not that like, it's not all gone. You just have to kind of like release it in some way. And that's how I think about in general, like all of their repeated worlds and all of their ability to find each other again. I think it's because there's something still there in her that remembers what it was like to be in a community where people depended on each other. And so when Michael says that, because he's very wise and clever demon, that unlocks the part of her that remembers that. And she doesn't know it's cheaty and she doesn't know it's more philosophy and she doesn't know what's going to happen, but she, she can access the feeling in some way of, I remember what it was like to feel like I owed something to someone else and someone else owed something to me. That's my theory. That's interesting. And, and do you think that that's helping her process the year that she's had the six months of doing good? Is that in kicking in there too somewhere? Yeah, maybe. I think even if she didn't get to be fully good all the time, she definitely did get something out of being good. She had a sense of fulfillment at times in her goodness experiment. And, and so maybe she's able to kind of access those again also. It's interesting that they didn't give her any moments of, I mean, I guess there's one, isn't she drinking coffee or something with the environmental guy while they're out, while he's training her? But you don't see her having the kind of sit-down moment she has with her roommates and the restaurant. So I guess in that sense, she's doing something for someone, but that is the, the element that seems to be missing. She doesn't feel either, I guess, responsible to those people for the project they're doing, but nor is she kind of close to them. And, yeah. and I thought it was kind of neat that when she goes back to her old boss at now rebranded Health E University, <laughs> that, you know, she kind of, uh, there's sort of an easy connection between them, it seems like. And I don't know what to, what to make of that. I thought that was a really nice touch. And, you know, I was thinking about also this question of good feeling that comes from that, because she there are two apologies that she makes in the episode. And people like us talk a lot about what's a real apology and what's not. We should give a shout out and a, a thing in the notes to a, a forthcoming book by our tremendous colleague, Rabbi Danya Rittenberg. Yes, I can't wait to read that uh, and uh, pre-order this book, which we'll put in the, the link, unless you're listening to this years from now, and then just go order the book, because it's what everyone will be talking about. But the first apology is the perfect one, where she goes up to the guy outside the supermarket and says, I'm sorry. And then she explicitly named, like, I've been mean to you a thousand times. And then she goes the extra mile, which is to actually show she's sorry by doing something. by but, coming. But first, I, but first she says... I want to apologize to you. And then he sort of stands there and she's like, what? And he's like, well, you didn't actually apologize. And then she starts to call him a name and then she realizes, oh, actually, I didn't apologize. She actually takes even a step further. Right? First, she thinks she apologizes when she doesn't. And I think a lot of us feel that way. We feel like we've mended the fence when what people are waiting for actually is for us to apologize in, in a real way and say, I did these things and that was very bad. Yeah, and it's perfect. And this should be like, we should make a, gif of this and send this to like every politician that thinks they're apologizing for something or every celebrity and it's like the perfect thing because then it leads her to something which makes her feel 
good and actually builds a relationship with someone, which is the ideal. Then when they're sitting at the restaurant and she fesses up about the, the dress bitch thing, it's a good apology. Like It's a good apology because she resists the chance to take the easy way out. And even though her friend says, you know, that's it, I'm done with you forever, she still says this is the right thing to do. But it's an uncomfortable moment. Like The reward for that isn't relational. She did owe her, like in terms of what do we owe each other, she owed her that apology, absolutely. And she owes it to her, even though she doesn't get any, there's nothing good, there's no, between the two of them, nothing is going to happen. But her friend, I think, doesn't owe her any forgiveness. Her friend really feels like Eleanor ruined her life. And it's to say, you you can't control other people. You can only control yourself. And so you have to decide, I'm going to make this apology, even if there's no reward, even if there's no guarantee that my apology will be accepted and that we will be able to move on from this. The relationships and the the good connections that Eleanor had in her, as you said, somewhat unaware memories of all the previous reboots, it's it's not only about that they were friendly and that they were even deep friends. It has to have something to do with moments when, when things went wrong, too. And in that sense, I think that when Chidi at the end in his video lecture talks about our bonds with others and our innate desire to connect with other people, like we have it generally, but like sometimes our desire to do something good for other people might be innate, but it that doesn't mean it feels good. And I guess overall, it has to more feel good than bad, probably, in order for that to work. But I kind of questioned that. And I thought, well, I guess it's good that she doesn't just say, okay, watch the lecture, I know what to do. (laughs) She has to go and initiate a longer inquiry into that. Can we do funny lines? Absolutely. Before we go. So I had three that really stood out to me that I thought were so funny. One is when they're trying to discuss a plan and Jason goes, I call shotgun. I don't know what we're doing, but whatever it is, shotgun, that (laughs) Cracks me up. I like when when Eleanor said she she cyber bullied Ryan Lochte until he quit Instagram. <laughs> like it's you know, w- will anybody watching The Good Place in five years know who that is? Probably not. I don't like, think I know. Wait, can you explain? Can you tell a, me? He was a swimmer <laughs> in the oh right Rio, and he like got in some trouble because he I can't remember exactly what he did, but anyway, he was like a really big deal. But he also got in trouble, I think, with like the Brazilian government or something during his time at the Olympics. And then my other favorite was that she goes, "Hurry up, time is booze." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's the nice thing about this show is right when you think like they're getting too serious and too earnest, they bring in something like that, and and you know, or or Tiniana Kendrick, and they just like bring in those things to remind you. In fact, like you are watching comedy, not a three-hour moral philosophy lecture. I at the end when after Michael's deep what do we owe each other question she, did I sell you a drink am I a bartender <laughs> yes that was great that was great did you have any other moments well I, I like when um you know she's talking to her boss about the Ponzi scheme within the Ponzi scheme and she's and, she, and he says oh I'm in witness protection so I can't be convicted of any crimes and she says well I don't really think that's how it works <laughs> right and the idea that he was informing for the FBI on the previous Ponzi scheme it was just and you know that was another moment I mean not to derail us from the funny lines she quits and he's like good job because we're all about to get taken down by the FBI this she thinks she's doing this great altruistic thing where she's quitting and in fact it's gonna keep her out of jail maybe (laughs) yeah there are all those little side streets of ethical philosophy in this episode and again 22 and a half minutes unbelievable i know i i will confess too i started watching this when i landed last night at midnight i was watching it because i was on a different time zone and i wasn't tired and i was like oh it's only 20 minutes like i'll be done before 12 (laughs) 30. 
did you have guacamole and booze while you were watching? Um, no, I thought that would really inhibit my ability to go to bed when I was to go to bed, which was <laughs> hours before. But Right. Well, here we are. We can take off our 25th episode of Tove Sashes and go about our day. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, John. This was really fun, and I look forward to doing it again. See you in season three. And that's a wrap on another episode of Tove and our second season of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Our next episode will be something a bit different to take stock of this podcast project halfway through the series. And then we'll jump into the amazing season three of The Good Place. We covered a lot of ground today, so check out the show notes at tovegoodplace.com for Jewish texts we talked about and deeper dives into some of what we discussed. Make sure to subscribe and give a good rating and tell people about Tove by posting on social media or calling people on the telephone or shouting from the gazebo in the town square. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tove Good Place. Got any ideas for the podcast or questions for us? Email Tove at tovegoodplace.com. Thanks again to Rebecca Rosenthal, at Rabbi Rebecca Bakes on Instagram. And I'm John Spirasavet, at Rabbi JS3, and writing a lot on RabbiJohn.net. Mark Evan Jackson plays Sean on The Good Place and hosts the official NBC podcast. And he has a sign-off that I've taken and adapted for this one. Now, go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.